When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Welcome to Season 5 of Clear and Vivid. This special episode with Melinda Gates is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Discovery. For more than 30 years, Discovery's global networks have been helping hundreds of millions of viewers understand their lives, their communities, and the world around them. From science and nature to food and lifestyle, and now the world's biggest sporting events and greatest names in travel and documentary films, the Discovery family proudly informs, entertains, and powers the passions that drive our planet. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. We believe in philanthropy that we want to try and show what's possible. When we came into this field 20 years ago, so many people would say, oh, but you know, it's just an enormous problem. It's a whole, nothing can be done. No, you have to imagine the future you want and then start to work backwards to break down the problem into uh, manageable pieces and to come up with solutions. And believe me, we do not always get it right. We've had so many mistakes and failures along the way, but we learn from those and we tack and we pivot and we keep going towards our goals. That's Melinda Gates. She's the Melinda in the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the world's largest philanthropy. When someone wants to make the world a better place and actually has the means to do it, you wonder, how do they go about it? What are their guiding principles? What works and what doesn't? We linked up between Melinda's offices in Seattle and our studio in New York, and I found her to be both candid and inspiring. Melinda, this is such a treat to be able to be talking with you today because, you know, we, on this show we talk a lot about relating and communicating and being aware of the person you're, you're communicating with. And I get the impression from everything I've seen and read about you and by you and by you that that's sort of a fundamental concern of the way you work to help the world be a better place, to be personal, to gather information firsthand from the people you're helping. 
Am I right about that? Yes. I think you have to speak with people and really, really listen and listen carefully to both what they're saying and how they're saying it, what they're trying to communicate. If you want to understand someone's life and then try to help them lift themselves up. And so I spend a lot of time in uh, villages all over the world, in townships and cities, really talking to people to understand their lives. I get the impression you don't just listen once. You have to keep listening and adapting to different versions of the same need. I'm thinking of that story where I think you were in India and you were working with sex workers and wanting to get them contraceptives uh, uh, so that they wouldn't get uh, STDs and that kind of thing. And then and then they said, no, that's not what we need. Yes, we had a goal, a shared goal with the Indian government of trying to make sure that HIV AIDS didn't spread into the majority of the population. It still at the time was really following the same way the epidemic had started in other countries. It was following the trucking route because the men, as they would go out in the trucks to have jobs, you know, they were seeing sex workers. And so we had this shared goal that if we could stop the epidemic along that truck uh, worker line, that it wouldn't break out into the general population. So as we started to do this work, we thought, okay, well, it's in a certain way, it's kind of a simple solution, like Thailand has done and other countries. Let's make sure that the sex workers demand condoms uh, in those situations. But as we talked with the sex workers and we met with them, they said, you know, okay, yes, that would be a nice thing to do. We, we would like to do that, but are you kidding? We're in these violent situations. You have to first help us work through the violence and how we can bring that down, and we need ways to talk about it. So we ended up creating these very, very tiny community centers where the sex workers could come together and talk about solutions, talk about ways to bring down the violence, have their children with them, because when they weren't working, they had to care for their children. Um, so we had to do that first before we could ever get to the point where they felt like they could then demand condom use of their workers. It's so interesting to me because their biggest need was a form of communication that would allow them to cut down on the violence every time they suggested that one be used. So you had the communication teaching you and as also a solution. It was very interesting. You know what has occurred to me, the kind of tragic problem, it seems to me, that the more lives you save, the more food you need to feed them and the more clean water you need. Do you do you approach that problem directly? Yes. So that's an interesting myth that Bill and I also believed and were very concerned about when we came into this work. We said to ourselves, my gosh, what if we save more babies with vaccinations or, you know, we offer family planning? What if we save more children, but then you have more children to feed? Luckily, the converse is true. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. How does it work? So a man or a woman, if they know that two or three of their children will survive into adulthood, they will naturally start to reduce the size of their family. They are basically running a calculus in their head that is an insurance policy. They have seen so much death in the developing world of children that they're saying, we want to make sure two or three of our children survive, so we better have five or six. I was in a village in India where 
there were probably, gosh, I don't know, not quite a hundred people there. And it was a group of women all sitting on mats with their children. And I said, everybody, would you raise a hand if you've ever seen someone die in childbirth or a baby that has died right after childbirth? Every single hand in the village went up. Mm -hmm. These villagers have seen death up close and personal, much of it. So to guard against that, they, they have a tendency to have more children. But then as the children are healthier, you find that they, they don't go for that insurance policy. That's exactly right. And we know that from around the world. If you look at contraceptive use throughout history, when contraceptives become widely available and there are different options for women, because women use different types of contraceptives at different parts of their life or the reproductive cycle, then all of a sudden within one generation— families start to reduce their size, uh, the size of the family. So whether that's in Europe, whether that's in the United States, whether that's Peru, whether it's Bangladesh or a country in Africa, families naturally start to bring down the number of children that they have. The pressure on women that you bring out in the book to do unpaid work is really phenomenal. And, and, and again, you, you tell a personal story that really strikes home when you were, I, where, let me see, where were you in, in, in Africa, I think, mm-hmm. and you did the work of the women in the family. 17-hour days, were they? Just about. What was that like? Yeah, so my oldest daughter, Jen, she was 15 at the time, and I went to live with a Maasai family in Tanzania, and they were kind enough to have us in their home. And we said to the family going in, um, we were we were working with a community group that had been in this, this set of communities for over 30 years. And so when we went in with the community group and we said, we want to please live in your home, um, we said, but don't treat us as guests. We want to actually walk in the shoes of what Anna was the wife's name in the family. Anna and her husband was Sonari. Uh, we want to do the same chores Anna does every day. And so we walked for miles to collect dirty water in a bucket. Now, let, tell me about this walking. You you were wearing sneakers, and they were wearing what? I was wearing sneakers, and Anna was wearing flip-flops. And um, we had this very, this old bucket that we uh, collected the water in that might look like something you would have put plaster on the walls in your home when the maintenance worker comes. Big, big bucket. <laughs> put it on our heads. And we walked. It was not that hard to walk to what was the water pan, um, but walking home, once you had that bucket, you balanced it on your head, was so incredibly difficult. And believe me, I spend time working on my core in the gym. That didn't even help. <laughs> Did, can, I mean, can you do it without a lot of training? I mean, they've been doing it all their lives. I imagine it puts a big stress on your neck. It does. They have incredibly good posture, both when they work in the fields and when they cook. I watched Anna's posture and how straight as a stick she keeps her back all the time. And it was funny because as my daughter Jen and I and Anna were walking back to her home, um, other women were coming out of their homes on the road to see, you know, us carrying this water. And they were all chuckling and laughing about how hard my daughter Jen and I were struggling. <laughs> and um, they, these women are tough, and they've been doing it a long time. So we collected water with Anna. We cooked. I cooked in the cooking hut at least five hours that day, which was a separate little hut as part of their Boma, their compound of tiny little mud huts. And what's it like in the hut? Is it smoky or do they have enough ventilation? 
completely smoky. Luckily, in Anna's case, I've been in other ones of these. She and her husband had built it in such a way that they knew to ventilate it out at the back. But I'm still telling you, when you're there chopping onions and chopping tomatoes and boiling water, you're getting a lot of smoke in your eyes, even with decent ventilation. And it's hot. And I followed her out to the field. Um, oh, we went and chopped firewood. Jen and I chopped firewood with Anna and her other daughters, which is a woman's work in the developing world. I am terrible at chopping firewood. <laughs> terrible. Um, and she was quite good at it. And believe me, she kept trying to show me, you know, how to look for the right wood and chop. And, um, you know, and again, you go and put it on the wood pile, and guess what? There's a whole bunch of scorpions. I remember my Jen uh-huh. saying to her, hey, what does anybody ever get stung by a scorpion? And she's like, well, yeah. And Jen said, well, what do you put on it? She said, well, nothing. You just deal with it. So women are tough in the developing world. Wow. And what about mealtime? Do do you, do you, did, the, did the women eat with the men or that other process where they wait? Yeah, in that culture in Tanzania, the women actually eat with the men. That is not true in many other cultures. Like I've stayed in homestays in Malawi, and that is not true. So the women eat with the family. Um, and Anna and Sonari, her husband, were luckily in a very loving, uh, mostly equal relationship, except for kind of some societal norms. So we all ate together. But when dinner was over, the interesting thing was it was 10 at night, dark as can be out on the plains in Tanzania, moon's out. We're out in the dust as a group of women, Anna and her daughters and her sister and my Jen and me, doing the dishes in the dust in the dark. And yet... One of the uh, sets of children in the home were twins, twin boy and twin girl, and they were just switching from primary school to secondary school and had to take their entrance exam. The family was incredibly worried about the daughter, Grace. So it was a male twin and then Grace. The male twin had passed his uh, exam and was headed into secondary school. They were so worried about Grace. And what I observed was that that young male at night could go study in the home under the one light bulb they had. But Grace was out doing dishes with us in the dark at 10 at night. Mm -hmm. And when my Jen came out of our little hut with a headlamp, Grace, who was a pretty shy adolescent, which is pretty typical at that age, she came right up to my Jen. And the one thing she asked us for while we were there is, may I have your headlamp when you go home so I can study at night? After being up so late working all day. Doing unpaid labor. Yeah. You remind me of that wonderful scene you draw in your own kitchen. I mean, I love it that you're so personal, that you, you, you're brave enough to tell inside stories. When, when, you, when you said nobody leaves the kitchen, tell me that story again. I love that. Sure. So we have a tradition in our family that um, after dinner, we um, all do the dishes together. And so we would divvy up the chores, um, and quite often I would kind of clear the table and load the dishwasher. Bill would clean the dishes. The kids would be tidying up. But finally, I started to realize when the kids were little at night that, you know, everybody would sort of melt away when the dishes were done and loaded in the dishwasher to go upstairs. You know, Bill to his desk, the kids to go do whatever they were going to do, homework or a little TV. And there I was in the kitchen, you know, a good 10 or 15 minutes left after everybody else. And so one night in a fit of sort of personality, I put my hands on my hips and I said, 
nobody leaves the kitchen till mom leaves the kitchen. And it turns out there are all these little things that you do to finish the cleanup that we hadn't divvied out that no one else was noticing. Well, I want to tell you, 15 minutes melted into five minutes really quick because when everybody picked up the chore, the extra little <laughs> chores, we all went upstairs at the same time. And that's what we still do. You're not allowed in our house to melt away upstairs until the kitchen's all done. It's funny to me because that's just a little bit of communication where you let them know something that they had conveniently not noticed that somebody was still in the kitchen doing work and didn't know how long it was because they weren't there. And I think that's the hidden key in this unpaid labor is that we need to look at all those places, all these assumptions where women assume about themselves because their moms did it or somebody else they saw did it, that we take on these roles or the family or society assumes we will take on certain roles instead of the whole family coming together and saying, what else needs to be done here? Why do we assume mom will just do it or we don't see it? So much of this labor is hidden labor that we don't see and recognize for what it is. I'm trying to think of that group in India that has this built-in problem. I, I think they're more untouchable than the untouchables. Yeah. And you worked with them and you got these these young women who were wouldn't even look people in the eye because they right. they had they had accepted the stereotype about them that they were not to be related to and you you brought them so far forward you and the people you who were your colleagues yes so in 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 northern india there's a group called the musahar which are the rat eaters and they are considered the lowest of the low they are considered the lowest of the untouchables and they're the example I give in the book is there's a beautiful um, woman I met. Her spirit is beautiful, Sister Suda. And she realized that the only way to transform a girl's image of herself was to fight hate with love. And she said to say somebody is untouchable or is, a, is the lowest of the low, that's just an unkind, hateful thing. And so she founded a school where a boarding school where she convinced parents of these villages around her to let the girls come to the boarding school. And slowly but surely, she started to educate the girls, uh, help them learn. She was incredibly respectful to them. She touched them a lot, you know, would hug them when you went into the school because they'd been told they were untouchable. They weren't worth touching. So that literally, it's meant literally. You can't touch them. You don't touch them. Wow. And they're told, even when they're walking to the school, they're they're spit upon, they're teased, they're told they're nothing. And so she said to transform their image, you have to educate them. And so she started doing that. And they started all of a sudden lifting their eyes. And they started seeing themselves differently. And then she realized that they were they were facing violence, even as they would walk home on the holidays or back in their village. So she thought, well, I'll bring someone in and teach them karate. So she said, you want to think of a girl knowing she's strong is if she can actually use karate to take down a man. So she taught them karate and they could protect themselves. Well, lo and behold, she decided to raise some money and take them to a local competition. They went to a competition and they won. Hmm. Then they went to a regional competition and she raised the money for the bus fare. They won. Eventually, she raised the money and they went to Japan. And they went to a society that didn't see them anything like they saw themselves. And they realized, oh my gosh, that is just a message we got from society. And they won that competition. And her point is that if you want to fight hate, you fight it with love and you fight it with education. 
And the loving touch of karate when necessary. <laughs> and the loving touch of karate. That'll set a man back. <laughs> when you're at work in a culture where something is not helping the people you're working with because it's a cultural attribute, how stuck are you? Because you want to respect the culture to be able to make contact with them. You don't want to go in and say, this culture, this thing you do because of your culture is a hurtful or damaging thing. Mm. How do you handle that? I think you have to go in and you have to constantly, we have to constantly take our Western world view hat off and really listen to what's going on and why certain people do things that they do. And you have to do your very best not to judge. And so, again, if you have a goal, let's say, of trying to save children's lives or make sure that women don't die in childbirth, you have to have your eye on the goal all the time, but you have to constantly tack. Just like if you were in a sailboat race or if you're in business, you tack on your strategy. And so when you hear these things, you have to think about, well, what's another way to go through that? What's Who's another person in this culture that might see things differently and that can help me. I'll give you an example. In the villages in Senegal, um, the imam, the village chief and the imam, the local religious leader, are the two most powerful people in the village, and they are men. But yet, um, and so often they will tell women that the Quran doesn't allow for family planning. But if you meet with the senior leadership in Senegal of the imams, they will tell you, actually, that's a false notion. People mistakenly think that the Quran doesn't allow for family planning. It does. And so if you say to them, well, would you all help us with this? They'll say, yes. And when I started to ask them why, I said, why would you help us get this message out? And they said, because one of them said, my sister died in childbirth. Another said, my first wife died in childbirth. We don't want our women to die. We love our wives and our sisters. So we need to help you. We know there's this problem. We need to help get the message out. And there's ways we can do that through our network. So you find like-minded individuals who understand the culture, understand the context, and then you ask them respectfully for that help and that change. What about a difficult problem like genital cutting? Mm. That that sounds so entrenched, as mandatory in the culture as foot binding was in China, it seems to me. Right. And how do you work against that? Is it a religious attribute or is it purely cultural, to the extent you can separate those two ideas? Yes, it's it's something that has just been around for a long time. I've asked that question in many settings, and it's just what they know it, many places, I'll, again, I'll give you an example of Senegal. In Senegal, they use a euphemism of, for it in the villages. They call it the tradition. Mm. And they just know it happened to them, it happened to their mothers, it happened to their grandmothers. And what they believe is that they're protecting the girl's honor and her virginity and that they're protecting the family's reputation. But it's just, it is something you do, the tradition. So, Instead of coming in and blaming and judging and saying how horrific this is, you have to work with them on the ground with people who are living and working with them to start to introduce new ideas in ways that they can hear and listen. 
So they may have a goal, for instance, of uh, cleaning up the water because they know that people are getting sick because there's dirty water around and they want clean water. You help work on that first. But as you're doing that, you start to have conversations of what else would you like to change? Have you ever thought of this? You can introduce ideas like contraceptives. Eventually, with enough time and trust, you can introduce the idea of, do you know that not all women in the world practice the tradition? And as women then start to talk about what's happened and and why it's done, it just starts to open their eyes. Just like the Sister Suda story um, from India, they start to think of things in new ways. Then you get the village to come together and men and women to talk about it. Then eventually the women have to and the men have to commit that they're going to change this cultural practice. But then somebody, and it usually takes the village chief, needs to go talk to all the villages around because they can't marry those girls into the other villages if the, if the other villages expect their girls to be cut. There will be nowhere for them to be married. So you have to give this time for this idea to percolate and spread and people work through it to then to get them to commit, we are not going to do this anymore. And I think that's probably the only way you get through female genital cutting. Sounds like there are two important elements from what you you just said. It sounds sounds to me like you have to have a lot of staying power and you have to have tr- the trust of the community, which both of which take a lot of time and commitment from the person working there. I'm, I'm reminded of um, a woman who wanted to be helpful at births as a midwife but was not allowed, wasn't trusted because she was Western. And she didn't she help out with water first for a long time or something unrelated to birthing? Exactly. And I talk, tell her story in my book. She was in India. She was already helping in the village with other issues like water. But then they didn't want her to help with births because they were used to the traditional midwife, but they were allowing her to attend births. And what she eventually was in this emergency situation where she sees a newborn delivered, but the baby is blue. And she knows that the baby is getting chilled too quickly, too fast, and that child is extremely likely to die and and get pneumonia and die. And so even though it was completely culturally inappropriate and was taboo, she scooped the baby up and put it on her chest and wrapped it in her sari. It was taboo to touch the baby at that point? Why was that? Because the the belief was that perhaps the baby has uh, an evil spirit inside of it, and that evil spirit may rise up and kill all of us. So she put the baby on her chest, and then what? And then the baby started all of a sudden turning pink and warming up and, br- and breathing and cooing and crying. And the villagers, it was almost like you brought this child to life that they didn't know could be alive. And so all of a sudden, the villagers started to realize that this practice, this woman from another part of India had been talking about and trying to teach them about, that it actually worked. And so the concept spread like wildfire throughout the villages. And guess what? They started to then realize, hey, that wasn't an evil spirit that was killing that child. That child was just getting too cold after birth because we have birth practices that as soon as the baby's born, they would tend to the mom first and Mm. then the child. Mm. And so if you go throughout time and history all over the world, when we can't explain certain things about death or about diseases or about health, we tend to come up with other 
um, stories in our mind of what might be going on to explain it. And then we pass those stories down throughout history. You need to actually interrupt that chain and say, no, this actually, you know, here's what's actually going on and we can actually solve this. Melinda has been doing enormously insightful work to raise up the lives of women around the world. When we come back, our conversation turns to the status of women in our own country, right after this short break. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Melinda Gates. You're doing this incredibly useful work around the world, helping to raise the status of women to what it ought to be. How about in our culture, the status of women in science, STEM? Mm. We do a lot of workshops to try to make sure that women have the tools they need, the communication tools to push back on problems that they get. Have you come across problems and solutions that we should know about? Absolutely. So one of the things that I am passionate about is making sure that women get to be the top positions at an equal level, uh, women and people of color in all professions. And one of the places that women are not as far along, quite honestly, are the STEM fields. It's getting better in some areas and not as much in other. But let me give you a specific example of how this shows up and where it matters. Do you know that in the United States, which is where a lot of the great science and new healthcare innovation comes from, that we have not been putting money into contraceptives, new forms of contraceptives in over 30 years Mm. because our politicians and policymakers assume that problem is solved for women. Women here, you know, predominantly use the birth control pill. They're pretty much happy with it. No, if you had new forms of contraceptives, women in the United States would take them up and women in Africa would take them up. So guess what? One of the things we're actually doing is funding new contraceptive technology. The contraceptive, it's predominantly used in Africa, Depro-Provera, this intramuscular shot that's painful, side effects. You get it once a quarter, you walk to your clinic. Turns out that intramuscular shot can be given subcutaneously, which is a tiny little shot under the skin. We're trying to work on a six-month formulation of it with less side effects that a woman doesn't have to walk to a clinic. She could eventually take it home and give it to herself. That's an innovation. But unless you fund that issue, it's just not going to change. And so... 
You know, I look at fields like law and medicine. The time I was in school, late 1980s, there was a big gap between men and women um, graduating in those fields. Today, we have basically parity in medicine and law, if not slightly more women graduating Mm -hmm. in those fields. But in computer science, the field I was in, we were on the way up. We'd gotten to about 37% of women, uh, of graduates of computer science being women. But now it took a precipitous drop in the next 10 years. And guess what? We're down at like something like 19% of women graduating with a computer science degree. What happened? Why would that take place? Because uh, the early personal computers, where originally the Atari, the games were, um, they were very neutral. It was like Pac-Man, Pac-Woman, Breakout. Eventually, when the IBM PC came out, they started marketing the computer to boys as a boys' gaming device. Mm. And so guess what? All the game makers made games for boys, shoot 'em up games. So girls were saying, not interested in that. So the boys go into it, the boys start coding, and the girls back out. So we have a vicious cycle. We have a vicious cycle. And we also, when you think about the difference technology and computers have made in our society, they are changing society by leaps and droves. I mean, think about a decade ago. You didn't have a cell phone in your pocket with apps on it. And so we have to have women and people of color with a seat at the table in technology uh, to create our future. Otherwise, we're actually biasing. We already know we're biasing our technology. It sounds like the same problem as uh, developing new contraceptives, unless you have women in uh, high echelons of policymaking or, or deciding which direction research will go in. There's a blind spot that's built into the person who's directing the progress. And here you have the same thing. Right. Because today, if you want to create, say, a new application, a new piece of technology, generally you start by creating it and getting funding. You you get venture capital funding. Well, in the United States, less than 2% of venture capital funding goes to a woman's business. Less than 1% goes to a person of color. So right there, there's already a big barrier gate put down on a woman's face. And and there are many reasons for that, but we have to break through that. We have to start funding ideas, women's ideas for business, because guess what? They have ideas that sometimes men quite often don't see. Men don't predominantly take care of the children. And yet there could be fabulous caregiving apps that help a woman find a last-minute babysitter uh, you know, if she has a child who has dyslexia, go online and find resources for that. Go and find somebody that can help her. But we don't fund those types of businesses because men don't understand that part of the market very well. And they fund what they're used to knowing can be successful. And so they fund other male-led businesses. So what do you think is the uh, the entry point that would be most successful to remedy this? Is it Communication, do they need to sell their ideas more forcefully? You know, you one of the things that you talk about in the book, the importance of male allies to work side by side with them and that kind of thing. I think we need several things. Um, absolutely, male allies are part of this. The only way we're going to change society is for the enlightened men. I know many of them. Uh, you probably know many yourself the enlightened men to help women more, to use their voice, to stop another man if he's bullying a woman, Mm -hmm. to stop a man if he's re-explaining her point in a meeting, and to sponsor and lift women up. We know that women, we know that men in companies have a huge network 
And at a 70% rate, they get sponsored in a business by another man. Inside the corporation, the women have very few sponsors. So that alone is one thing a man can do right then, is decide, I'm going to sponsor some women for jobs. And not just mentor, sponsor. In the venture capital community, we just have to break the lock. And that means actually moving money, having funds that will fund women-led businesses. So we have mentored women till the cows come home about how to present their ideas you know, in venture capital space, mm-hmm. and they're still not getting funding. So we just finally have to move money. And so we're starting to see funds raise up that expect a really good return, but they over-index for women-led businesses. And when we start doing that and men start seeing that money's left on the table, these businesses are successful, they'll start to move in that direction. So money. And then even in computer science, we need to stop thinking about it as being what they call a pipeline, one way into computer science. No, we have to create lots of pathways for young women to come into computer science. It makes a huge difference if that freshman entry computer science course in college, if it has real-world problems versus theoretical problems. I'm not sure I understand the idea behind what you just said. It sounded a little like you were saying that women might have a different way of learning. They have a different way of looking at the world. They are often less interested in spending time going through a very theoretical math problem on the computer. They are much more interested in practical solutions that are real world. So if you literally take a math problem in an opening computer science class and you make the math problem just very theoretical, and so they have to go code against that, versus you take the exact same math problem, but you couch it in, and this will help in this hospital in this way, saving this number of lies, and then we'll help the doctors be able to analyze this and follow up with the patient, et cetera. So you couch it in a real-world problem. The woman is far more likely to to want to go after that computer science class and say, yeah, I want to do that real-world thing that helps mm-hmm. people in a health healthcare setting. And she's still going to solve the problem. She's still going to solve the same math problem she would have had to do if it's theoretical. But she's more interested in it, and she's going to persist in it longer. And once she gets the first computer science class under her belt and sees that she's been successful, because so often society's giving her a message, if you're not a white guy in a hoodie, you're not going to be successful here. <laughs> once she sees she can be successful, she persists and keeps going. It's clear you you really look to ways to break down the problem and not take what first appears to be an obvious solution. What's really going there's usually a complex system at work. Very that you have to you have to chop up and find out what the parts are. But what's interesting is you seem to have a very clear vision that it's not just metrics, however important metrics are, you got to find out the humanity under the metrics. It's a little bit like, like what you were just saying about seeing the, the, the math problem as a human problem. It gives you different insight. You, my, my guess is from reading your book that you get insight into what you think are the solutions you can deliver by learning more about the people you're delivering them to. Yeah, so the way I learn is I sit and listen and try to listen very deeply to what's going on and what the real-world problems are that people face. And then by hearing that and hearing it repeatedly or seeing it in different settings around the world, I come back and look for the data that matches what I've learned to see if they actually match. Uh. 
And what I have come to learn is that we have actually collected very, very little data about women's lives. We've collected a little bit of data about deaths and births and a little bit of data about um, their reproductive life, but that's about it. And again, it's because society didn't see that as important. Even in the science, the health sciences of, of men and women, we thought that drugs, the way they move through a man's system, they move the same way through a woman's system. So, you know, we've recently learned in the last five years that you, you can't just say that a woman is half the weight of a man or, you know, X weight and, you know, that her body is just like a man's essentially except for reproductive organs and her weight. That is just not true. The way drugs move through her system move differently than through his system. And yet all the trials were basically for so long uh, tested on men and even male mice. So because (laughs) even male mice. And so we didn't even, because we didn't have women in these positions of power to say, well, what about what could it move through differently through a woman's body? Shouldn't we test it on a woman's body? So we both have not funded things about women's health. We haven't collected data at scale about women's lives. And some of the data we do have, what I've come to learn is biased and that is in, but in an inadvertently, and that is highly important to change. All of those things, or we will not make decisions on behalf of good decisions be, be, on behalf of women all over the world. And yet, women are not only fifty percent of society; they are the center of the families, and they are the ones in the developing world who lift their families up, who are expected to take care of the children's health and feed them and get them into school. And so we have to look at this other half with finesse and collect data about their lives and fund data and fund research if we're going to really change society. The problem is so complex and so enormous, it just amazes me that you've been so effective in taking it on because it's people think of the Gates Foundation as... Uh, as having a, a huge source of money, but you've got a huge source of compassionate intellect at work as well. One thing, if I can just add to that, I think one of the the unexpected things to Bill and me after we started the foundation is we underestimated how much our business thinking from having worked, both of us worked at Microsoft and in that private sector that you know, you always have a strategy. We were we were in that industry trying to create brand new products that had never been before there before. So we, you know, had to imagine the future. And then you have a strategy, but you keep, as I said, tacking on it and finding different ways. And that sort of business-minded thinking with, as you say, compassion and mixing the data and analytics and where we don't have data, going and getting it. Um, and the stories, it's the mix of those skills with our partners that I think allows us to see the future we can imagine, which is a better world for everybody, but then to constantly break the problem down into smaller and smaller chunks and work on it and tack against your strategy when things don't work. And we believe in philanthropy that we want to try and show what's possible. When we came into this field 20 years ago, so many people would say, oh, but you know, it's just an enormous problem. It's a whole, nothing can be done. No, you have to imagine the future you want and then start to work backwards to break down the problem into uh, manageable pieces and to come up with solutions. And believe me, we do not always get it right. We've had so many mistakes and failures along the way, but we learn from those and we tack and we pivot 
and we keep going towards our goals. It sounds like good advice for all of us, no matter what we're doing. We've sort of run out of time. I wish we didn't because I'm, I'm enjoying this so much. But before we go, uh, we ask seven quick questions that that ask that invite seven quick answers. You, you game? Great. Good. Oh, of course. Okay. What's the hardest thing you've ever tried to explain to someone? How a computer actually works with the <laughs> zeros and ones inside. <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> How do you handle a nosy person? I set up very clear boundaries, and I try and move them out of my life. Oh, like what would be a boundary? That sounds so interesting. Um, Don't, it's none of your business. That's sort of the big one. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm living my life the, true to my values. Yeah, yeah. Okay, number three. How do you tell someone that they have their facts wrong? Very gently. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay, good. People don't like to be told that they're wrong. And so you have to do it in a very gentle, kind way, and you don't do it in front of other people where you will embarrass them, or you'll get their back up, and they'll uh, never hear you. Yeah, good good technique. And it's a couple of our old favorite questions. What's the strangest question anyone's ever asked you? What I ate for breakfast? <laughs> like, do you care? <laughs> people ask you that? Yeah, it's strange. In an interview, you're like, do you, do you really care? <laughs> Sometimes they say that just to make you test the mic out. Yeah, that's true. I don't mind doing it for that yeah, purpose. As long as you know what it's for. How, how do you stop a compulsive talker? Um, I'll say it's a technique I actually learned from Bill's dad, which is to say, um, wait just a minute. And I'll try and do it in a really friendly tone. And I'll just do a really gentle interrupt. Or I'll say, uh, if they're compulsively talking, Oh, just a second. I'd like to also hear what this person has to say. And so I'll kind of use my hands to kind of stop them. And then I'll gesture at the person that I'm hoping maybe can get in on the conversation. Yeah, that's, that's a thoughtful approach. How do you like to start up a real conversation with someone who you don't know at a dinner party? Um, yeah, I hate small talk, to be frank. <laughs> I really hate it. So I will try and, um, Ask them something about their day, hmm. or if they have a family, ask them about their family. Getting getting them to talk about something that's very real to them, hmm. um, and then I might offer something about my family that feels a little unexpected or a little bit vulnerable or um, a way that I can relate to them. That's interesting, to show your own vulnerability. It probably invites people in. Absolutely. Last question. This is really interests me because I'm always interested in what what all kinds of people say about this. What gives you confidence? Other women and men at my side, where it's almost like we're in a rowboat, rowboat all pour, pulling the oars together. And, you know, I sometimes can see their weaknesses or I'm sure they can see mine. But we're all trying to do the same thing together. And when I know they believe in that cause and I believe in it with laser focus too, I know we can get it done. And so having other like-minded men and women around me, uh, that's been hugely helpful to me. That's great. I've had such a good time talking with you. Thank you so much. Oh, for thank you so much for this, Alan. I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, me too. Thanks so much, Melinda. This has been clear and vivid, at least I hope so. 
My thanks to Discovery for being our presenting sponsor this season. All the income from the ads you hear go to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Just by listening to this podcast, you're contributing to the better communication of science. So thank you. For more information about the Alda Center, please visit aldacenter.org. Melinda Gates is an extraordinary person with the mind of a visionary. Her recent book is called The Moment of Lift, How Empowering Women Changes the World. And she hosts an online site called Evoke, which is made up of a community of optimists. You can join her community and find out more about the book and the big ideas that have developed as a result of her advocacy by going to evoke.org. That's E-V-O-K-E dot O-R-G. This episode was produced by Graham Chedd with help from our associate producer, Sarah Chase. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula. Our tech guru is Allison Costin. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. When someone calls you a badass in print and then tells you it's a compliment, you kind of want to know more. Laura Brown is the editor of InStyle magazine and sort of an authority on badassery. And now, without further ado, you want to know how to be a badass, please welcome to the stage two great badasses, Alan Alda and Laura Brown. Laura Brown and I just finished a really fun conversation at Guild Hall in East Hampton. I had a great time with you. I had the best time with you. I, I was just saying, I think we need to take our show on the road. So where will we go next? West Hampton? Heaven and back, baby. <laughs> My conversation with Laura Brown, next time on Clear and Vivid. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.